All right, good morning. Um, my name is Stephen Yu, and I'm one of the pastors here at West Covina Christian Church. Uh, if you're new or haven't been with us, uh, we're currently going through a, a sermon series uh, titled Fervent Prayer. A fervent Prayer. And today is actually the last sermon uh, for this series. Uh, so if you haven't had the opportunity to hear the previous sermons, I want to encourage you to go to our website, westcovina.church, and uh, listen uh, to the previous sermons. Uh, I believe that you will be blessed and you will be inspired and encouraged uh, to come before the Lord and to pray. Um, the title of today's sermon is Two Kingdoms. Uh, could you look to your neighbor and say Two Kingdoms? Say it with conviction. Come on. <laughs> Two Kingdoms. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hear it right there. I hear the fire. Fire right there. <laughs> and today uh, we'll be talking about the role of prayer in spiritual warfare. Prayer in spiritual warfare. And our scripture reading, it comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. So if you have your Bibles, please open with me to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. If you don't have your Bibles, that's okay. We're going to have the text printed or uh, projected on, on the screen behind me. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm... Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me, and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Bow your heads with me as I pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy word that you've given us. Lord, to bring to us your love. Lord, to bring to us your character. To bring to us who you are so that we may be able to worship you. Lord, your word is a gift to us. And so, Lord, we humbly come before you acknowledging, Lord, that your word has the power to transform our lives, to pierce the hardest hearts, and Lord... To reconcile it with yours. Lord, you see. You see the pain and the struggles and the warfare that we go through every single day, Lord. And we just want to bring that to you. Trusting that you are a good, good father. 
and what you hope and desire for us is restoration, is healing, is redemption. And so, Lord, we humbly come before you, hoping for these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. One of the first things that I ask when I'm getting to know people is, where are you from? Where are you from? And I ask that question for two reasons. One, knowing people, where people are from, it helps me to memorize uh, people's names. And two, I like placing people's stories in geographical context to get the bigger picture of their story. As I've gotten to know you in the last three months, it's already been three months that I've been here, as I've gotten to know your stories in the last three months, I've learned that a lot of us are not native to the greater LA area. Some of us moved here because of work or school or relationships, and others of us moved here because of circumstances that were out of our control. Right, but for whatever reason, whatever reason you move to the greater L.A. area, one thing that is certain is that you sit here today in the church pews of West Covina Christian Church because God orchestrated you here. Because God orchestrated you here. God brought you here. There's no coincidence in that. Because the God that we worship, right, he's intentional. He's purposeful and he's sovereign. Right? Consequently then, there's a purpose. There must be a purpose to why we sit here. Why you and I sit here today. What is that purpose? What is that purpose? Well, if any person in West Covina wants to see God, if they want to see God with their eyes, or if they want to hear God with their ears, or if they want to understand the character of God with their minds, and what he's all about, all they need to do is look at our church. All they need to do is walk into our church doors at West Covina Christian Church for them to experience that. Isn't that true? Right, that's true because according to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul, the author, he says that the purpose of the church is to boast and to make known the manifold wisdom of God. To boast and to make known the manifold wisdom of God. Meaning the church is to make known the many various colors of God's wisdom. Right? Because the literal translation of manifold is many various colors. So Paul is basically saying that this church, West Covina Christian Church, which is built on God's people, it's built upon us, is dynamic. It's evolving. It's many various colors. It's multi-ethnic. It's multicultural. It's multilingual. It's multi-socioeconomic. It's made up of all different types of people. The church is not for just some people, right? But for all people to receive the promises and the blessings of God, right? That he lists out in Ephesians chapters 1 to 3. And by being built together, by us being built together into a church, the manifold, the many various colors of God's wisdom is revealed to the authorities and to the rulers of the heavens. Isn't that amazing? Paul says that this was according to the eternal purpose that God had realized in Christ Jesus. In one per person, it was realized. 
So from the beginning of time, God, he had this plan. God had this plan that we, mere mortal beings, would be the foundation upon which he would build his church. That we, mere wretched sinners, would be the building block upon which his glory would be manifested. Right? That we, the church, would boast the manifold wisdom of God, not to the, just to the people around us or to the world around us but, or to the residents of West Covina, but to the rulers and to the authorities of the heavens above. That is the purpose of the church. That's the purpose of why we sit here today. You see, the church, this right here, what you're doing, sitting in the pews, it's the climax it's the realization of what God had in mind from the beginning of time. And that's why we sit here today. Isn't that a humbling thought? That's a humbling thought. You see, since the time that the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, the purpose of God's, the purpose of God's church, it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. And the reality is the purpose of Satan hasn't changed either. Which is why after writing this long description, right, in this letter to the Ephesians of the ideal church and the purpose that God had in mind for it, Paul, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That's how he closes his letter to the Ephesians. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You see, God, he created angels. Right, he created the angels, and we know that within their free will, these angels, the angelic beings, they were divided because one group of angels, they sought to establish a throne high above God's throne and to become like God. Isn't that true? They're what we know as fallen angels or demons. Right, and God, he created man and woman, Adam and Eve. And we know that within their free will, Adam and Eve, their hearts were fractured from God's as they sought to become like God by eating from the tree of good and evil. They're what we know as sinners, us, you and me, human beings. That is us. Right? So Satan's purpose from the beginning, it was to dethrone God. Right, it was to become like God. And we see that he tried to do that through Adam and Eve by convincing them that they can be like God if they eat from the tree of good and evil. And today is no different. Today is no different. Satan does it today, even for some of us as we're sitting here, by convincing us to live for our own pleasures. Right, that, that we don't need God in certain areas of our lives. That God is restrictive, right, and in Him there is no true freedom. Right, that the church is dated and irrelevant. Those are the lies that He speaks to us. And that we can be like God, right, in our workplace, in our homes. If we work hard enough or make good grades or have more money, Right, or if we have all the right degrees, then we can make a name for ourselves and be like God. You see, the moment, the moment that you and I became Christians, 
is the moment that we were enlisted in spiritual warfare because we're the church. You see, one thing that we need to understand as a church is that Christianity is not a religion for the weak and for the passive. There's no such thing as a passive Christian because that's an oxymoron, right? We either live for God's kingdom or against his kingdom because there are constantly, always, two opposing forces influencing us at any given moment. That is the reality of the, 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 the life that we live as Christians. There is a warfare between two kingdoms, one trying to establish a throne above God's. And he does that, and he fights it by trying to destroy you and me. You see, as Christians, we're especially susceptible to being influenced and motivated by the, de the devil because his sole purpose of existence is to destroy God's church. So if you're on the front line of ministry, right, you are a target. If you're a leader in the church, you are a target. If you're wondering, why am I constantly being attacked? It's because you're a Christian. Take joy in that. That means you're doing something right. If God is seeking to use our church to boast the manifold, the many various colors of God's wisdom, we are a target. We are a target. So something we need to notice is that Paul says that our battle isn't physical, right? He says it's not against each other or against other people. It's not against our spouse or our children or our coworkers, but it's against, what is it against? The, the principalities, the evil forces, the powers of this dark world. That is who our enemy is. Spiritual warfare, you see, because it's not flesh and blood, it always begins where? In our mind. That is where spiritual warfare starts. It always begins in our mind. It begins in our mind and it, it takes place in the mind. That's where the war takes place, which ultimately then manifests in the, in the physical realm, how we live our lives. Right? The devil knows that if he's able to plant one thought in your head and get you to believe it, then he's able to control what you think, right? And if he's able to control what you think, he's able to control what you believe. And if he's able to control what you believe, he's able to, he's able to control what you believe about your spouse, about your children, about your coworkers, about God, about the church, and even about yourself as you look in the mirror, right? And the genius of this, right, the genius of this is that without even touching you, without laying a finger on you, Satan, he can bring havoc on your life if he can get your mind to believe in his lies. Satan, he can hinder an entire church from boasting the manifold and the many various colors of God by influencing just a handful of people to believe in his lies. Isn't that true? So if the mind is the battleground, what are Satan's weapons? What are Satan's weapons? What does he specifically do to manipulate our minds in order to derail our lives and our church? John 8, it says, the devil was a murderer 
The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. First thing, Satan is a liar. He's a liar, right? He's a deceiver. That's the essence of his existence. Everything he speaks is contrary to the word of God. So as one, right, who has no truth in him, his primary weapons are temptation, accusation, and deception. Wake up, church. Temptation. Say temptation. <laughs> accusation. Deception. And these three typically go hand in hand. So let me take a moment to paint a picture for you guys of what his scheming work looks like. And tell me if this sounds familiar. Look at the way she ignores you. She doesn't even say hi to you anymore. She doesn't like you. Right? That, that, that's the temptation. The temptation to judge the heart intent of another person without having all the facts, right? We don't know if that person just lost a loved one or is feeling helpless because of her children or just fought with their spouse on the way to church, right? We're tempted to judge their heart based on that one interaction, right? Then after that temptation, it, there comes the accusation. She's so rude, right? How can she call herself a Christian, she shows no hospitality or kindness. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, I see you guys nodding your heads. Right, then what follows is, is the deception. She can't be trusted. I need to avoid her at all costs. And you find yourself interacting with this person based on this inner de the deception that you've embraced. Right? This one thought. This one lie. Right? And you live your life and interact with this person according to that one thought. Or tell me if this uh, sounds familiar. If you just do it this once, it'll be okay. You deserve it. Right? You had a long week. This is how you can relax. Right? That's the temptation. The temptation to twist God's word to think yeah, I know God will forgive me if I just do it this one more time. He died for all my sins, not just some of my sins. Right? You guys know what, what I'm talking about, right? And we fall into this temptation, and the temptation to repeat a habit you know is self-destructive and toxic to your family. Right? Then after you're done with what it is that you do, right, what follows is the accusation. How can you call yourself a Christian? How many times did you say you were going to stop? And follow, what follows is the deception. I'm such a horrible person. I'm so bad. I'll never get it right. Right, and you find yourself living with this deep shame that you only see getting deeper and deeper each day. Let me give you one more example. If you had just spent more time praying 
and reading the Bible with your daughter, she wouldn't have strayed from the Lord. There's a temptation, right? The temptation to believe all hope is lost and all responsibility for your daughter's wayward faith is on you. That's the temptation. And comes the accusation. You're such a horrible father. Right? You're such a horrible mother. You serve so faithfully in the church, but your own house isn't even in order. You don't pray enough. You didn't pray enough. Right? And what follows is the deception. I'm such a bad parent. I'm a bad Christian. There's nothing I can do to bring my daughter back to Christ. And we live with this looming sense of hopelessness because we've been deceived into thinking our prayers were in vain. Right? Temptation, accusation, deception. So the question I have for you this morning is this. What are the lies that you believe that is preventing you from experiencing the fullness of God in your life? What are the lies that you believe that's hindering you from boasting the manifold wisdom of God through your life? What are those lies? You see, the truth of the matter is, most of us probably don't know that we're being deceived. You know why? Because that's what deception is. (laughs) It's thinking that a a lie is the truth. (laughs) That's what deception is. You see, Paul, he understood this. Paul understood this, and he understood that in light of God's promises, through Jesus Christ stands a real enemy who's trying to destroy the church and dethrone him. Who's trying to destroy you, who's trying to fracture your heart from God's. And so for that reason, Paul, he urges the Ephesians to pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Paul says to pray on all occasions, not on some occasions, right, but on all occasions. Because the devil, he doesn't attack on just some occasions. His hours aren't 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, Right, it's every single day, every minute of the day, every hour. You see, prayer is the one thing, one weapon that we have against the devil. Because when we pray, you know what it is? It's the Spirit of God that intercedes for you and fights for you. It's the resurrection Spirit that raised our Lord and Savior from the dead. It's that same Spirit that prays for and through you. You see, if you try to fight a spiritual battle with physical force with self-will i swear to god i'll never do it again i promise i'll never do it again i promise i'll be better to you right or i'm not going to believe this like you know you will be deceived if you try to ignore the reality of the spiritual battle around you you will be deceived it is only by the spirit of god that you can recognize and slay the lies of the devil So Paul charges us to pray at all times. To pray at all times in the spirit because prayer, get this, prayer is to permeate every piece of God's armor that we have on. You see, the helmet of salvation, it's to be infused, 
The helmet of salvation is to be infused with our prayers so that every moment of the day we're reminded that our deliverance from sin and our freedom from sin is not by the works of man but by the work of God alone. The breastplate of righteousness, it's to be covered by our prayers so that when the enemy lies, right, that's what he does, and makes us question our rightful standing before God, we're reminded that we are saved by grace alone. The sword of the Spirit is to be dipped in our prayers so that as we read the word of God and wrestle with the truth of his word, we allow God's word to become the order for which we live our lives. Right? The shield of faith. It's to be coated with our prayers so that even when we find ourselves in a hopeless and helpless situation, we're reminded that we have a God that will never abandon us or forsake us. The shoes of the gospel of peace, it's to be polished with our prayers. Every moment of the day so that we may be ready to declare the manifold wisdom of God, even in moments of persecution, just like Paul. You see... Prayer is not an additional piece to the armors. You have to understand. It's not an additional piece to the arm. It's not an occasional, occasional spiritual discipline. It's the divine, it's a driving force that allows us to live to the fullest potential of what the armor of God allows and offers to every believer. That is prayer. Without prayer, you will be deceived. Are we convinced of that now? Okay, good. When the Israelites, when the Israelites first came out of Egypt, God's plan wasn't for them to wander the desert for 40 years. Right, he, he, he wasn't thinking, I'm going to deliver them out of uh, 400 plus years of slavery and make them walk around in the desert for 40 years. That wasn't his plan. He parted the Red Sea, right? They fought battles and made it all the way to the land of Canaan, to the promised land. And God commanded Moses to send 12 spies into the promised land to explore the land, the land that God had promised to the Israelites. Isn't that true? Right? And they came back with this report, the spies, that the land is bountiful, that the land is plentiful, that the land is flowing with milk and honey, that they have fruits the size of people's heads. Right, but here's what they said. Here's what the spies said. Spies said. But the people of the land are powerful and their towns are large and fortified. You get that? Instead of focusing on the promises of God, the scouts instilled fear in the people of Israel, claiming that their enemy is stronger than they are. Right? They instilled the lie that the giants who inhabited the land would devour anyone who steps up against them. And the whole nation of Israel, they trembled. They trembled in fear to the point that they wanted to kill Moses and go back to Egypt as slaves. So what did God do? God punished the Israelites for their lack of faith in his promise. Right? And so they wandered the desert for 40 years. Because of that, they wandered until a new generation of people were brought up. Ones who weren't afraid and ones who believed in the promises of God. And 40 years after wandering the desert, again they were confronted with Canaan. After 40 years, they came upon the promised land that they were supposed to enter into 40 years ago. And two spies from Israel, 
again they were sent to the promised land, to Jericho, to scout out the land. And they came to a house of a prostitute named Rahab. And listen to what she says to them. She says, I know the Lord has given you this land. We were all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in tear for a fear or in terror, for we have heard how the Lord made a dry path. Right, 40 years ago, how he made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And she goes on to say, no wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For your God is the supreme God of the heavens above and the earth below. You see, at this moment, you can just picture these two spies pulling out their hair, right, in regret. Oh my gosh, they were afraid of us, <laughs> right? We wandered the desert for 40 years for nothing, <laughs> right? <laughs> you see, these so-called giants were trembling in fear of the Israelites for 40 years. They had heard about the crazy miracles that God had done for the Israelites, Yet the Israelites, they trembled in fear because they bought into the temptation that God's promises are weak. And they were deceived into believing they stood no chance against their enemy. The Israels, they bought into a lie. And they suffered for it. All the while, their enemy trembling in fear. We have an enemy that trembles in fear. He fears because of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ that covers us. He fears because he knows that there will come a day when for eternity he'll be cast into the depth of hell. Right? He fears because of the armor of God that surrounds us. We face an enemy that trembles in fear at the sight of us. As children of God, he fears and he trembles. And because he can't touch you, he fires these darts. He tells you these lies. So are we. Are we living according to the promises and benefits of Christ? Or like the deserts, are we wandering, having bought into a lie from the devil? See, the Lord, he invites us this morning back into his arms. That is what prayer is, an invitation back into his presence, back into the truth, back into the throne room of prayer where he welcomes you and desires only good for you. He wants to remind you of all the promises that he has over your life. The power that we have lies in our prayer. It's not our power, but it's God's. As we enter into this posture right, and this mindset of prayer, we learn to surrender all things unto God. Trusting that He's good. Trusting that He's a good Father. Trusting that His promises are good. Right? It's when we taste and see. It's when we taste and see the goodness of God that we can discern the toxic lies of the enemy and strike it down with the help of of God's spirit. There are seasons in our spiritual journey where God, he calls us to take drastic measures, okay? 
He calls us to take drastic measures to pray to destroy the work of the devil in our lives. Many of us here are in bondage. Many of us here have been deceived. Bondage to a lie the enemy has been feeding us for way too long. So God, in his good grace, he invites us at times to take drastic measures to destroy these lies. What do I mean? I'll illustrate it with this story. Okay. A couple weeks ago, I shared with you um, how the Lord led me to go to Uganda, right? Um, well, in 2008, I quit my job, and I moved to Uganda as a missionary. I went to Uganda, and at the time, when I was asked, why are you going to Uganda, I remember giving the best Christianese answer that I could think of, right? Oh, to minister to the needy. Right, that's what I would say. To minister to the needy, to do God's work. Right? And I, I, in hindsight, I think I wanted to convince uh, others what I was doing was worthwhile. That it was worthwhile. But truth be told, I was filled with hidden resentment. With hidden rage. With hidden shame. During the course of my stay in Uganda, I used Romans 8.1 as a way to uh, go through or process my shame. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. That's a famous verse, right? Romans 8.1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. It was a verse of consolation to help me process through my shameful past. Right? And this verse, it reminded me that in Christ, there is no one or no sin that can condemn me. Right? As I t- as, as, in Uganda, as I spent time praying, I was convinced that my behavior, particularly my issue with anger, my issue with anger was influenced by what I had seen growing up in my family. So I earnestly prayed to God, please God, take this anger away. I don't ever want to be like so and so. Right, and I expected if I prayed that prayer long and hard and fasted, God would miraculously take away this inner rage that I had my entire life. But as I continued praying, instead of becoming more lighthearted as I expected, the anger and the rage and the shame inside of me, it just grew. It began growing more and more. And the pain of it, was so unbearable because all my raw emotions that came to surface confronting me right smack in my face. I had no work to drown in, right? I had no relationships to run to. I had no media to numb to, right? I had nowhere to hide. During my time there, I had the opportunity to attend a prayer retreat, to attend a prayer retreat with other missionaries. And during a workshop, one of the spiritual directors spoke about generational sins and how people vow never to inherit the bad habits they see in their parents or siblings. Immediately, I was able to relate because of my inner rage, because of my anger. The speaker pointed out what I had never considered. The condemnation and the judgment I directed towards my family when I prayed, I don't ever want to be like that. Rather than praying with a heart of surrender, I made an ungodly vow with a heart of bitterness. 
judgment and condemnation when I vowed never to perpetuate the rage I saw in my childhood. You see, it was then, it was then that God, he showed me my desperate need for his grace to lead me to deep forgiveness. It was then as I was praying that I realized that when God spoke Romans 8.1, he was saying, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, which includes your offenders, your per- per- perpetuate, perpetuators. Is that the right way to say it? Perpetrators. Perpetrators. Amen. <laughs> and those that have hurt you. Right? Because of my short-sightedness, it took me several years to realize that I was the condemner and that I had taken the seat of judgment. I was the one who was deceived. Essentially allowing the enemy to keep its stronghold of anger in my life and paint the way I saw my family and how I interacted with other people. You see, initially when I sensed the desire to go overseas, I was confident it was an invitation by God to fulfill a particular mission, right, because of my gifts. But I know that the work I did, it, it, was, it, it, did, it doesn't even matter, all right? The work God did in me through my times of prayer was primary. God didn't allow me to keep living a, a, a deceived life. And he did that by leading me to Uganda. In my heart, I knew I had to make a drastic move. I knew I had to make a drastic move as I was discerning whether or not I should go to Uganda. And the drastic move, it led me to a place of prayer. It led me to a place of prayer to pray and to wage war against the lies I had believed. See, I'm not charging you to move to another country. All right, that's not my charge. But I am encouraging you to take drastic measures to pray. Take drastic measures to pray. If you feel an urge and tug and pull in your heart to pray, take drastic measures to do it. You see, the reason that we fail to pray, it's not because the desire isn't there. All of us has the desire to pray. It's because we don't plan for prayer. It's because we don't plan for it. Right? If you want to go on a two-week mission trip to the Congo, right, it's unlikely you'll just say one day, oh, I want to go to the Congo and build houses. Right? It's very unlikely that we'll do that. You won't have your plane ticket. Right? You won't have a place to stay. Right? You won't have your house and job in order at home, but that's how we often treat prayer. That's how we often treat prayer. We know there are things we need to pray for. We feel a strong urging from God to come into his presence in prayer. We sense temptation looming all around us, and we know we need to pray on our knees, but we don't because nothing is ready and planned. We don't know who to pray with. We don't have a time or place to pray. And since, since we don't have, since we don't plan, what ends up happening is we say, okay, we can hold off on it until a later time. How often has that later time come around? Never. 
The unplanned rhythms of prayer, it leads to one kind of prayer. No prayer. There's a war to be fought. There's a battle to be fought. There's a kingdom to be fought for, to boast and to make known the manifold wisdom of God. God is inviting us as a church to pray because, first and foremost, He wants you. He doesn't want anything from you. He wants you. He loves you. He pursues you. Pursues you. What's blah, 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 blah. He loves you. He wants good for you. But you must plan for it. You must take drastic measures to make it happen. And see what happens when you do. See how faithful our God truly is. And let Him, through you, boast the manifold, the many colors of His wisdom to the world around you. Today concludes our series on fervent prayer. And so Pastor Corey and I want to provide a space for you to pray. We don't just want to say pray. We want to provide a a space for you to pray with us. So two months ago, we started the Concert of Prayer, where we meet the first Wednesday of every month at 6.30 p.m. here in the sanctuary. Pastor Corey and I, we've also been meeting for the past two months in the sanctuary on Thursdays at 6.30 a.m. That's early, but that's a drastic move that you can take to pray. Come before the Lord and ask Him, Lord, do you want me to go to this prayer meeting? And if He says yes, come. If you feel the pull and tug, come. And experience His faithfulness. Experience the promises that he has, that he's claimed, that he's declared over your life. We meet every Thursday here in the sanctuary at 6.30 a.m. And we pray for about 45 minutes. So I want to encourage you, if you don't have a planned rhythm for prayer, let that be your planned rhythm. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.